We don't have endless funds, so if we make this decision, we can't make that decision. So consensus building really introduces us to not only our various points of view, but it convinces us of why this artist is important at this particular time. And sometimes it takes time. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. What do Sterling Ruby, Oscar Murillo, Kennedy Yanko, and Amoako Boafo all have in common? Well, beyond being some of the most sought-after contemporary artists of the last decade, they are also all veterans of the prestigious Rubel Museum Residency Program. Helmed by its namesake founders, the mega-collecting duo Don and Mayor Rubel, the residency program is something of a hitmaker. Call it the Rubel Effect. And beyond just minting art market stars, the Rubels now have two significant private museums, a 100,000-square-foot campus with more than half that space dedicated to galleries in Miami's Alapata district, and now a newly opened 32,000-square-foot outpost in southwest Washington, D.C. The Rubels' art collecting began when they were newlyweds who would squirrel away $25 here and there from Mara's teaching salary to put towards acquisitions while Don was in medical school. Now, along with their son Jason and daughter Jennifer, They own one of the largest private collections of contemporary art in the world, with more than 7,400 works of art by the likes of Kehinde Wiley, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and Catherine Opie. On the heels of the Rebels' D.C. Museum grand opening, and just weeks before they will hold court at Art Basel Miami Beach, Artnet News' senior reporter Katja Kazakina caught up with Don, Jason, and Mara to discuss the origins of their collection, the symbiotic relationship between art and real estate, and their famous Midas touch for sussing out the hottest emerging artists. Hi, Mira. Hi, Jason. Thank you so much for joining us on The Art Angle. Such a pleasure to see you again. Thank you. In the art world, of course, your family needs no introduction. But you weren't always mega collectors. I'd like to start at the beginning. How and when did you catch the art bug? And what artists did you first acquire? We caught the bug when Don was in medical school and I was a Head Start teacher back when we got married in 1964. We walked through the streets of New York, basically in the flower district of Chelsea at the time, where the artists were working in storefronts and living illegally. And on our breaks from study, because I was studying for my master's, my husband was in medical school, we would take these breaks And we discovered a universe of talented, amazing people in those storefronts who at some point said to us, we have this friendship, you love our art, why don't you buy something? Well, I was earning $100 a week and Don was in medical school, so it wasn't exactly a salary meant for collecting art. But somehow the artist made the suggestion, well, what can you afford? And I don't mind a long payout. And so that's how it happened. Okay, how much can you afford? $5, $25 a week. Basically, we gave up at least 25% of our salary to begin buying, but it wasn't about becoming a collector. It was just about supporting artists who we were just falling in love with. And so these artists, they still work today? Do you remember who they are? or We they... were in the category of $100, no, they, you know, $20, I, you know, $200. You didn't come at it with some no, programmatic no. philosophy that people come at it today with, with advisors and people helping. It was a very kind of 
a social engagement with the artists. And I don't think that was about sort of discovering. It's right? not you like were looking we were doing for masterpieces. No, we weren't you, doing research on like who are the great, you know, artists. It was, about, the it was a social engagement and a friends. Look, John's was $900 at the time. That was like today a million dollars. So saying, oh yeah, can't you afford a million dollars? No. So no, we didn't fall into Rauschenberg's studio. We could have really fallen into some major artists, but that didn't really happen. You know, they're not names that you would even, you know, you wouldn't know. But there were people that we learned to talk to about art, understand how they live, understand the motivation behind the art. The biggest thing we got out of that period is really how to be in an artist studio, which in itself is really, as you well know, because I'm sure you visit a lot of studios. It's a meaningful place and how to behave there and how to make it meaningful for yourself and for the artists takes time. And I think we gained from that. And so then did things become more formalized? Like you mentioned that Don was a medical student, you were a head start teacher. This is not an inexpensive passion, even back then, even though prices were very different. At some point, did you say to yourself, let's put aside, let's make a budget? I wish I could tell you that there was that kind of logic. The one time in our life that we made a budget, we broke it. Budgets never worked. We always spent to the absolute limit and beyond but for the generosity of artists and gallerists and gallerists into the future, we wouldn't have the collection that we have. We trusted them and they trusted us. You know, we tried at some point never to collect the art until we paid for it completely. So often we didn't collect the work until we paid for it. So it was a give and take trust. You told me a story how after the Whitney Biennial openings, all the artists and curators and everybody would come to your apartment, which was nearby. And there were all these emerging artists like Jeff Koons and Cindy Sherman. What was the scene back then? And how did you kind of make the transition from this very young collector to somewhat of more of a serious player? Jeff Koons was not Jeff Koons. Jean Michel was not Jean Michel. These were young artists. When we moved into this townhouse where Don had his medical practice, it was like our life was there. At that point, I started a real estate company that was on the top floor. He was on the down floor in the middle we lived. It was like our family universe. The biennial, it was really a thrill because it was the first time that young artists, someone like Susan Rothenberg, all of a sudden was in the biennial. This is all like, of a, your, like 76. Said, yeah, it was so thrilling. Like the idea that an artist of ours and our, from our collection could be in a museum just a few blocks from our house was like amazing. Those days, there wasn't much happening after these biennials. I mean, artists would go there, all these young artists, and then they'd kind of go home, but they were all like so excited to like do something. So it wasn't like a formal invitation. We said, well, why don't you come over? I know how to make pasta for an army within a half an hour. Here you have my partner in crime here. Hello, Katya. <laughs> oh, Don, hello, welcome. Sorry, I had to be on another call. Uh, okay. Anyway, everyone thought it was by invitation, but if the truth be told, we never sent an invitation. It was really just a spontaneous where people, right after the biennial, two blocks away, would just fall in. After one of those biennials, I can't tell you which year that is, probably 79, the following day, we get a ring at the door and we usually have to come down. I said, well, who is it? Well, it's, it's Jeff, Jeff Coons. Well, okay, why are you here? He said, I'm here for the biennial. I said, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're a day late. 
I thought that he was going to cry. So we invited him up. We didn't know who that was. We just knew it was an artist who was so desperately disappointed that he missed the biennial. And we that, were also hungry. And we were hungry. He said, well, as it happens, we're about to sit down for some spaghetti. So why don't you just come on up? That's how we met Jeff Koons. And the next day, he sent us this beautiful inflatable flower, you know, the inflatable flower in between two mirrors. So that was his bouquet as a thank you for an unexpected dinner with us. And that was your first Jeff Koons. And that was the first Jeff Koons. Incredible. <laughs> Do you remember what you had in the house at the time? Do you said mention Susan Rothenberg? Oh, we had Robert Gover. Okay, come over here, Jason. What, what do we have there? Robert Jason has a great memory. Deborah Butterfield, Stephen Keister, Nancy Shaver, Jed Garrett. Keith Haring, for sure. Oh, Ron Gorchow. Oh, Ron Gorchow. Ron Gorchow. just ended. Maybe just. And Jack Goldstein. Oh, Ron M. Fisher. R. M. Fisher. R. M. Fisher. The lamp. He was our light in the living room. Yeah. This was like that new image painting. It was basically that Willard Gallery, Goldberg, those kind of artists. Yes, yeah, that's incredible. Well, the big question always for you guys is that there were two of you. Now there are three or four of you. Like, how do you decide what to buy? Do you argue over those pieces? Is it sometimes Mira wants this, but Dan doesn't? Short of blood on the floor, we fight like crazy, like I, dogs. I would say <laughs> at least 50% of the time, we agree right off the bat. And, Without even and, speaking, we just yeah, oh, we yeah. just we look at each other and we think, you know, let's go for it. The other fifty percent of the time, it gets a little hairy. <laughs> <laughs> hairy is an understatement. Oh, the conversation is pretty cool. But look, it makes for convincing each other to actually do it because also we work together, so the money matters. I mean, we don't have endless funds, so if we make this decision, we can't make that decision. So. Consensus building really introduces us to not only our various points of view, but it convinces us of why this artist is important at this particular time. And sometimes it takes time. It doesn't happen instantaneously. Sometimes it'll take a year or so. Maybe it'll take two years. Maybe we come back to an artist in five years. We say, you know what? You were right. We missed that artist. But as many good artists as we have because of this system, we've also missed them. Some many. very good artists also. So it's, uh, it works I, in both directions. Since we always had limited funds, so to speak, every decision mattered. It was never like, oh, let's just throw a dollar here. In fact, we missed a lot of great artists. Like we go to Europe and find Clemente and Kia and Kuki and say, well, who's the best? Or we go to the studios and say, who's better, Keith Haring or Kenny Sharp? PS1. PS1. I mean, honestly... We should have been buying Kenny Sharp as much as we were buying Keith Haring. I understand that Kenny Sharp probably holds a grudge to this day, but honestly, at the time, it was like, who's the best? Who's the best? Who are we falling in love with the most? We were very monogamous, let's put it that way. Well, we were serially monogamous. <laughs> Painfully. Was there a tipping point when you realized that your decisions make a big impact on the artists and their markets? And if you can maybe recall what were the circumstances of that realization? When did it happen? When we opened the public space, I think that's what changed the kind of dynamic and the focus of the collection. It's the public impact that's really been amazing. Maybe it affects the market because the public point of view and public opinion shapes these things. But basically the broad sort of focus and appreciation, it activated the collection in a meaningful way. There's no question about it. 
look, we're part of an interesting dynamic ecosystem and we're one part of a story and the stories are galleries, institutions, collectors, uh, writers, spaces, writers, publications, fellow collectors, you know. podcasts. I mean, it's all, all these things make up the story of what's compelling today. You know, just this morning, we were saying we we're very excited about how the artists were showing this year. We said we have no idea if the quotes, you know, market and art world will respond to it. And I think of an artist like Aaron Fowler, who he did, did work, showed work five years ago, that we were sure was an absolutely fabulous artist. But somehow he never took well, off. And not yet. Way. He's still it's a very so young, young artist. artist but we, we don't, not every artist we show goes. It's just, but know, I'll tell you, each time we do it, we have the same kind of intense, excitement. It's like really a thrill to have the opportunity to show this and to get the public feedback. I think it's so much more for us rewarding to have the feedback in the public realm than it is in our own home. I mean, I think you hang a painting at home. Yes, you have your one-on-one -on -one relationship. Maybe some friends come over, but to have the general public, you don't even know who's seeing it and to get their feedback, that's pretty rewarding, I think. But I have to say it's very selfish, meaning that it's very pure pure joy, being together, making these decisions. Nobody else is really involved. We don't say, what is this one going to like or that one? It's very internal. And we don't say, well, this is going to have impact or not impact. It really doesn't occupy a lot of our time. What occupies our time is, honestly, I couldn't sleep last night thinking about the work that's going up right now for this coming show. An artist in resident, Alexander Diop, who was with us for three months, and the visual of that work going up right now and thinking back the three months that we spent with him making this work, it's emotional. I mean, it's like that we have a, this residency, I think has had such an impact on our intimacy with work and with the artist. That's a whole other level. And then, of course, the intimacy with the public. The public does what it does, you know. I mean, we're thrilled if they love what we do, but we do it and it's, it's very, very personal. It is very personal, of course, because it's you as a family that collects. But Jason, it was very interesting what you said about when you open to the public, it put everything kind of into focus and that's when things changed. It's not just your home where you can do whatever. There is a response from the public and for sure, you know that there is a response from the market. Because when you're buying something, people pay attention. Of course, what you mentioned, Mira, or just now the artist residency often gives a huge career boost and market boost to the artists that you select. And sometimes what happens next takes life of its own. Like, you know, I was thinking about Oscar Murillo. His artistic practice became a subject of intense scrutiny and some criticism in the aftermath. His prices went crazy. It was a huge story. And so do you feel a sense of responsibility? This curtain goes up. And then what happens next to the artist and the artist's career? I would say for myself, I only feel responsible for our intentions. And the only thing that we have going for what we do is our intentions, our relationship, the way we fall in love. I mean, we're marrying for love. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but responsible is a very serious word. And we take it seriously. We don't do anything to affect the market or and we tell people all the time what you're looking at is the view of three people we're really focused in on a very specific moment in the artist's career i mean this is an early pressing moment 
that's the real joy we get in it. We enjoy that time because it's when a lot of magic happens, I think in many artists' careers. So to be part of that, it's a privilege. And where the artist goes and where the career goes is really not something in our hands. You know, we're not, you know, and that's where I think gallerists and other institutions come into play. We try to stay with the artist as long as possible, but it's really difficult. I mean, that's the primary market crisis. Of- yeah, exactly. But it's an exquisite joy to be at a moment where the artist and you as a collector... It's it's, exciting to have that platform for these artists. I mean, an amazing visibility being, you know, usually open these exhibitions during, you know, Art Basel for opening in Miami. I mean, it's a unique time and, yeah, it's quite special. I remember, Jason, when we first opened in Wynwood in our former DEA facility, I remember the first year or two. What year was that? We opened the space in 94. 94, okay. It's almost 30 years. So 30 years ago, I remember a time and a period where we were very intimidated. We thought, well, is this going to be embarrassing? Do we have the art that, I mean, should it go public? Should it be that? It was inhibiting in a way. So it was liberating when we finally said, you know what? We're going to show what our passion is. We're going to show what we collect. At that moment in time, we realized, okay, we have a voice. We just opened in Washington, D.C., another space. And people are coming in, and it's interesting, they don't even really understand that our model is always just to show what we collect. It's not a model of borrowing work or temporarily holding the work. It's a model that kind of creates interesting confines and structures that work inside of our personalities. But I think it was Larry Gagosian who said that the art world is governed not by collusion, but by consensus. And it's good to be part of a consensus, but each part of the consensus is a separate entity. Right. Well, so when you had this moment, this liberation, you decided to just go for it. Was there a moment when you realized that you actually have a lot of power? Honestly, I don't even think that way now. I don't look in the mirror and say, oh, we have a lot of power. Truthfully, I think we operate more out of fear of not showing things that are compelling and interesting. I think that's what drives us. We don't want to look silly. We want to show things that are interesting, good, contemporary, young art. Many collectors focus on one specific period of their lives that's like they're in their 40s or something and they collect for like a 10-year period very intensely. That was actually the tradition with a lot of the collectors that Don and Mira were involved with back in the day. And those collectors had unbelievable collections, whether it was pop or minimal or Abex or whatever that was at that time. And that's the box that they stayed in. And they were great at that box. Our boxes always keeps moving, meeting new young art, new experiences. It's not just saying we're going to keep buying Keith Herring. We're constantly going forward. So what are you looking for in an artist? I was thinking just back a few years, you know, again, Oscar Morello, Alison Zuckerman, Purvis Young, Amoaka Boafo. Now you have Sylvia Snowden in Washington. What's the common thread? Jason hit it on the head. It's always about going forward. I think great art is intensely personal, yet universal subject matter in a medium that's very appealing, that allows the viewer to connect. I think that's the secret sauce. And I think sometimes you see art that's intensely personal, but yet it's so personal it doesn't translate to you or me, and then it sort of maybe loses its way. You know, it could be very meaningful to that artist, but it doesn't cross over. I like to think that good art is always teaching you something and kicking you around a bit and forcing you to think about the world in another perspective, in another attitude, and yet in a vocabulary that you can connect to. We talk about the joy of discovering a young artist. The fact that we present art that people connect with is very meaningful. It's very meaningful. 
but you have to choose one every year. I don't know how it happens. It's really a miracle because there's no process to it. It's also sometimes serendipitous. Always. It's always serendipitous. I think the engagement and the energy that we bring to this residency is interesting. I think that's part of why it's so successful. I think that we give the artist quite a bit of confidence, I think. There's a commitment to collect it even before we know what it is, in a sense. So it's almost like a commission, but it's like between our staff and all the people at the museum engaging with the artists. Without our staff, without the commitment of our director, our director's been with us 23 years, Juan Velazquez, without his devotion to it, the way our entire staff embraces an artist who comes to work in our residency, it kind of becomes a family that embraces this artist, not to mention forklifts that they don't have, space that they've never had. A place to live, a place to work, a place to talk. It's very personal, very personal. Amazing, yeah. Now, the trends that are set through your exhibitions, like I just find it so fascinating and it's one of my favorite moments. Every year, the art world descends on the Miami for Art Basel and the theme of your show becomes them so influential somehow. Like I remember when your focus was the German art one year and then everyone was collecting German artists and then it was Polish artists. And then remember you had 30 Americans and of course that exhibition took off and has been traveling around the country to how many museums? 22 museums. 22 museums. I feel like maybe Black artists have been the focus for a while now, right? With, again, like Purvis Young, I remember you had. And is that something you seek out? The story of 30 Americans and how that's been so widely seen and those artists and younger artists, it's such a compelling story. There's so much history to be told. We're all living in this American history. These are stories that need to be out there and we're constantly getting reinvigorated by young art. We just did an installation in DC of Chase Hall's work, the youngest artist in that exhibition. And it's just like blow away work that like gets you thinking about history all over again and thinking about your relationship to it. But there was a moment where we realized that like Jason said, it was like, oh my God, it was just so compelling. And one artist was introducing us to another artist, to another artist, and suddenly we're going to studios one Black artist after another saying, this is, as like Jason, that's stories that we haven't heard before. Compelling talent. It continues, it continues. It continues. But you were, as collectors, I would say mainstream collectors, very early exploring that story and almost leading the conversation alongside institutional engagement or even before that. We follow the excitement, we follow the ideas, we follow the talent. We really follow the talent. The first time we presented 30 Americans was 2008. And as it happens when we opened it, you know, Obama had just become president. But it was so ironic that we opened the 30 Americans in January, we're inaugurating the first black president in America. It just happened, but th that was at least three years in the making. But even though it was three years in the making, 
we had already collected David Hammonds. We had already collected Carrie James Marshall. We had already collected Robert Calder Scott. It wasn't like a strategy, oh, we should collect Black artists. It was, again, every studio we visited or every connection that one artist introduced us to another artist. It became so compelling. And at one point, I remember sitting and, and saying to Hank Willis Thomas, I said, Hank, we have all these incredible Black artists. Maybe we should do a show of them. And then one day, I'll never forget, Carrie James Marshall said, you own all this work by Black artists. I think maybe it's an interesting idea. I mean, why not? Your intentions are pure. You own the work. You're committed to the work. I would say that has been the biggest surprise, the biggest reward, and the biggest learning curve for us in terms of the power of art, what that show means to people who come to see it, what it means to the institution showing it. The institution opens up to an audience that never went to museums. The, the audience, audience was never was comfortable entering the museum. So this show somehow opened, opened the, door. the door, the floodgates. Suddenly museums said, oh my God, look at look this at audience. This, what we have a constituency we never, never paid attention to enough. And the audience you're talking about, the African-American audience. audience. One director speaks to another director. Each director tells the other directors, there's a tremendous audience that embraces the show and will mm -hmm. learn about your museum. They'll come to the museum for the first time. So we're, we're thrilled. It, it's a very powerful. And the exhibition is the same exhibition, right? The works don't change. The checklist changes based on the space that it, of the same institution. Artists. The same artists. There's and the no same way. number of artists. Yeah, the same number of artists, but different works usually. I love that, that some of these artists were so young and really very little known. And now they're some of the biggest art stars for their generation. It's truly a testament to your vision as collectors and I want to just quickly go back to the moment. We'll talk a little bit about Miami. You moved there in the 90s, right? Correct, yeah. 93. And so, 93. Did the foundation start pretty much around the same time? I think the foundation, I think, starts in 94, I believe. 95. After, yeah. So I was thinking about your role in bringing Art Basel to Miami. You really lobbied for that. Well, I took a delegation of the then mayor, Neeson Kasdan, Nancy Liebman. We took a whole delegation to uh, Basel, to Switzerland, okay. mm -hmm. to convince the convention center in Miami to give up a slot for the Art Basel because they had other art fairs there. In order to create a slot, we had to convince them that this was going to be a transformative event and an art fair like Miami had never seen. And of course, once they came to Art Basel, we spent the weekend there all of a sudden they realized that art was a major, major economic engine for Art Basel. And oh my God, what could that impact be for Miami? So it was only after that, that the convention center agreed to create the slot inside of the convention center for Art Basel. It took lobbying. And then of course the community became yeah. involved. You know, the whole community really came to support that. When you say you took them, you like you organized the trip and paid for them to I go? I didn't pay for them. I was very friendly with the mayor, Nizan Kasten, was convinced that this should happen. The problem was not who to pay for it. The problem was to get someone to grab these people by the scruff of the neck and get them to come to Art Basel. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it was a double sword. It was convincing Art Basel to come here in the first place. The winning argument, interestingly enough, happened on Lincoln Road when Jason said to Sam Keller at the time, and Lorenzo Rudolph, the, the then director, he said, 
why don't you do the convention center, but then do all your young galleries on the beach in containers, shipping containers? I remember those containers. Yeah, yeah it was fun. That five, was the winning five, argument. Five years they did it or so. Yeah. So Part Art Basel was sold on coming here. But then would you believe that it required convincing Miami Beach to give up a week for Art Basel Switzerland and maybe replace one of the art fairs that they had before? Incredible. And we were laughing recently that there are people who go to Miami for Art Basel. They don't even know that Art Basel is an art fair. They just go for Art Basel to Miami. It's become such a big thing. That fair transformed Miami and your presence in Wynwood transformed that district. And your presence as a foundation, as an art destination. And then some years recently, you decided to leave and move into a totally new area, Alapatha, right? Which is not known as an art destination. Why? Art and real estate are linked. I mean, you need space. The collection keeps growing. And we were desperate for, originally looking for storage, and we found that incredible building. It was seven buildings connecting warehouses on the And it was like three, three and a half times the size of the old space. And I think we just said, this is the right time to do it. Not to mention that Wynwood had appreciated like crazy. So we were able to sell one and triple our size and go to the railroad tracks. And we found tremendous value there. Right. And it was a grand, great opening. And then three months later, the world got shut down. And yet your residency, you kept it open, right? We had on our podcast, Genesis Tremaine and Kennedy Yanko. And they talked about how important it was for them to do that residency at that time. But I was wondering, what was it like for you? It was the only kind of life that felt was happening. It was like a lifeline for maybe it's for the artist, but maybe it's much for us. You know, it was kind of to feel connected to the world a little bit when the world was all shut off and no one was traveling. And we were in a cocoon together. It was nice. But more important, both of the artists that you mentioned, both Genesis Tremaine and Kennedy, are highly spiritual people. I mean, we'd walk into her space, Genesis, and she'd be making a painting and singing. So to have a spiritually connected person who deals with holiness and what it means was profoundly meaningful to us. Did you ever think about not keeping the residency? The artists wanted it. They had a big studio and they were doing their work and we had... I would say more limited interactions than we normally would have. It was as safe a zone as you can create. It wasn't like either come this time or never come. It was their choice to come. And Genesis really wanted to come during that time. I think, how do we continue to do what we love and stay safe? It was profoundly meaningful having an artist like Genesis. Her connection to her mother being a gospel singer and basically every painting is about the Bible and stories of the Bible and stories about spirituality. And what it means to have as part of the makeup of a painting saying that the Holy Spirit is in it. In fact, I just heard that a preparator, a major museum, is buying a work of hers, and they wanted clarification. How do you take care of the Holy Spirit in a painting? We know how to take care of paint. We know how to take care of the canvas. How exactly do we take care of the Holy Spirit in the painting? That answer is not clear, but no, something but to think about. In the materials she uses. It says as part of the materials has the Holy Spirit. I would say that every painting has a Holy Spirit in it. 
<laughs> but usually we don't. We don't list it as a material. All right, let's move into DC quickly. It's obviously been long in the making, this project. 15 years. 15 years. So what is the overarching theme and what is your goal with that museum? This was really not a plan. It just really happened. Basically, the Cochrane buys this debilitated property from the city, an old junior high school, and they walk away from developing it. And we step in and it takes us many years to figure out how to get it renovated, you know, bring it back to life. So over this time, was it always an intention to have a museum or was it just a great deal? The neighborhood organization participated with the Corkin because it was a city property. It needed the blessing of the neighborhood. And the neighborhood always wanted the legacy of this building to stay alive, which is some cultural institution. And when we came to the table, a friend of mine who we graduated from Brooklyn College together called me up. She was a developer in D.C., who was focused on this neighborhood, said the community is looking to do something important with this building. And if you bring your museum here, I think we can probably win the RFP and buy it from the Cochrane. So that's how it happened. It's also a very different physical structure. Yeah, the so community very want... different things with that museum yeah. versus this yeah. museum. The community really wanted a museum and they came to it's... Miami, they came to research who we were, they came to trust us, they came to understand what we really want, our intentions. So it took a long time. Plus, we needed to find the right developer yeah. to make this happen with us. That's why it took 15 years? Yes. So this is, again, that link, right, between real estate and art, which we touched on a little bit earlier, that if you can revitalize a place through art you're bringing, it also helps your business, right? And This one has not much to do no. with business. It has more no. to do with the fact that business serving the art, which I think is really what... Well, what happened at the end of the day, the development of those apartments allowed for the rehabilitation of these buildings. And at the end of the day, it's owned by our foundation Mm -hmm. and it's completely debt-free. That's the important thing. I see, I see. So the foundation developed the buildings and built the museum. It's more complicated, but basically the development of the apartment buildings funded the rehabilitation of the historic buildings into the museum. I mean, do you see the real estate and art interconnected? I mean, it seems through your family involvement in both. To house itself and art infects neighborhoods and art, I think, brings great things to neighborhoods. And we've seen in our lifetimes of art, you know, what happened with art coming to Wynwood, art coming to Alapata has been, I think, you know, it's still early in its growth, but it's brought a lot of positive. But it took time to find the right developer who can Mm -hmm. make it work. Mm -hmm. One of the artists that you showcase is Sylvia Snowden. I wanted to find out how did you... Find her. You know, Beth DeWitty, a fellow collector, she has what's called the bunker in Palm Beach. And she did this exhibition where she invited a guest curator who happened to be Sylvia Snowden's art dealer and Franklin Parrish to come and curate from her collection an exhibition. And when we came to visit that exhibition, the one painting that really took our breath away was of this one artist. And Franklin happened to be there that weekend. And he said, well, this is an artist from D.C. So, well, we're going to be in D.C. next week. Maybe it'll be fun to visit her because we think this painting is amazing. So we went to her. She lived in this townhouse many, many years and had basically paintings of 30 years stacked up, painting away. 
again, I mean, you can't make this up. We found an extraordinary artist who's 80 years old making amazing artwork all these years. It was exciting to engage yeah. with something that was so locally based and been producing in D.C. for so many years. That was kind of invigorating for us. That's incredible. So did you, I remember that with Purvis Young, you bought almost the entire estate. Is that kind of a similar situation? Oh, no, no. We bought six paintings, again, because we like we to, we to, like to nice make a presentation. Yeah. And we picked that one particular body of work that deals with her love of her daughter. Any mother can relate to that. I mean, when you see these paintings, she has a way of taking the figuration and translating it into an abstraction where you feel the figure and you feel the emotion. She's just a mad painter, just can't stop painting. We just fell in love with these paintings. We couldn't believe it. And of course, they were all dusty. And it's amazing. As good as they looked in the studio, when they came in and we had them all cleaned up, they were like, oh, my God, just taking the dust off of them. They just sparkle and vibrate. It's incredible. In D.C., of course, you're joining a very different scene. In Miami, it's probably driven by collectors. In D.C., you have powerful national institution, the Smithsonian, the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery. What is your role? What do you bring in? We just brought ourselves. <laughs> what well, else can we we're just, yeah, 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 we're, we're, we're just, we're the young kid on the block there. I'm just surprised how welcome yeah, everybody they're, they're is. Very... I mean, they're so embracing. I mean, every institution there, I mean, the Phillips Collection, the National Museum of Art, Every single institution, the collectors, they made dinners for us, they made lunches for us. It's, it's just you know, so welcoming. We're bringing a very young perspective, you know, what we always do. The audience there is incredible. Is it different from Miami and how? The volume of people that are showing up to see the space and... We had like uh, 5,000 people for the opening. Hungry for cutting-edge uh, contemporary work. We had no idea what to expect. And of course, being in that place, obviously politics and all these big issues and ideas, it, it really gets you really engaged with the yeah. curatorial decision. It's kind of fun. It's an old school with classrooms and teachers' offices. Mm. We didn't change any of the configurations. So walking through, you can feel yourself There's as a, a student of, in this a place. Of, a lot of history, a lot of stories. Speaking of the space in the auditorium, right, you have this very monumental, beautiful Kahindi Wiley painting, which I remember from Miami. It was always in Miami. So I guess, how are you going to divvy up your incredible art? Wait till you see, we brought Kahinde to D.C. and wait till you see what ends up on the wall that Kahinde hung. Can you tell us? You know what? It was very motivating for Alexander Diaz walking through the museum and saying, it's exciting. Wow. So, okay. I can't wait. And I think that this is a wonderful place to end. We're very excited to see how your presence will boost the DC art scene. And of course, we're very excited to see your next big exhibition in Miami in a couple of weeks during Art Basel. It's been so great speaking with the three of you. Thank you for taking the time out of your hectic schedule to be on our show. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manley, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.